Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hey everybody, how's everybody doing on this on this Tuesday or whenever you're listening to this podcast? Welcome to the latest edition of the Believe in Hub of Champions podcast with your host Shukri Wright. I'm excited, I'm excited, ecstatic, and thrilled to be joined by Anthony Stewart of the NHL on Sportsnet. And and if if you are a person who listens to um to NHL talk on on, on a lot of different platforms, whether it be on Sportsnet, on properties, or even elsewhere. You know Anthony Stewart pretty well, especially from his playing days in the NHL, having played for the Panthers, as well as the former Atlanta Thrashers as well, and one season with the Carolina Hurricanes. Anthony Stewart of the of Sportsnet, thank you for coming on the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks a lot uh, for having me. I've been following all the great work you've been doing, so very, very excited to uh, to be here today with you. Oh, thank you. I really do appreciate that. I mean, like, how's your summer been? Like, I mean, it it, it feels – it feels like hockey can't come back fast enough. And all I all I'm seeing is people mostly, you know, enjoying their leisurely time and you know, whether they're going on vacation or going on golf outings. Like, what have you been up to? Well, I'm a man of uh, many jobs, like a, a true Jamaican that does. I think I have four or five <laughs> other jobs outside of my uh, media responsibilities. Uh yeah. I'm the new president of the Junior B hockey organization uh, just outside of Toronto called Waterloo. So we're trying to create uh opportunities for people on and off the ice that are equity deserving and uh people thinks because now the nhl season's over i'm resting and relaxing no i do uh, on ice development for a lot of the nhl players and junior hockey players in toronto so i was actually just uh, off the ice uh, earlier on with uh, uh giovanni smith who just signed with the san jose sharks and uh you know tom wilson uh tyler sagan who just got married so it's a big uh, list of guys that I'm on the ice lending my expertise, but uh, very grateful for the opportunity of what I'm doing. But uh, it's a long days, especially in the summer. Yeah, I can imagine. Like, in fact, tell me about the um, like the work that you do, like mentoring, and um, and and, and like and, and like the on ice work that you do, like especially with uh, with the like the youth program that you mentioned um in the Toronto area. Well, you know, for me, you know, my brother and I, we 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 played in the NHL. We made it to the NHL because we were obviously great players, but the main reason why is we, we had the support of the community and we had them to go above and beyond for myself and my brother to make sure we had rides to the arena, food to eat, equipment. And, you know, for us, you know, we really feel that the hockey's become a little bit more transactional as opposed to community-based. We're trying to bring back that community feel where we're generally trying to help the next generation of kids. And, you know, for me, I'm on the ice with these kids, you know, anywhere from seven to, to 17 years old and on top of doing the pros. And, you know, I, I can see with my own eyes an extra Jerome Ginla or Kevin Weeks or, or superstar NHL hockey player with the proper mentorship and development and, and just right direction. Uh, that's how you really create that that next generational player. So for my for me to be on the ice or, or be in the mentorship uh, side of it or helping them with advisement and, and careers, finding their <laughs> navigation through their careers, anything I can do to help, uh, that's what uh, I'm trying to do to go above and beyond to do because that's what's given to me and I had that opportunity as a younger player as well. Like tell me about like your childhood because I remember reading a story about you and your brother Chris Stewart who also played in the NHL as you mentioned um like growing um, like you, you were born in Quebec um if, if yeah. I'm not mistaken correct and yeah. like you coming from a from a Caribbean background me being Guyanese so I can understand like like certain dynamics you mentioned jokingly about having having to work multiple jobs that's literally me right now. So, yeah. so I understand but yeah. 
But tell me about your upbringing, um, growing up, and and like how you fell in love with with hockey, and how, um, in more ways than one, like it actually helped you, uh, like shape a lot of your formidable days um, as a youngster. Yeah, well, my dad immigrated uh, from Jamaica in the mid to late seventies, and uh, he left Jamaica and went to Montreal right in the Canadians' uh, heyday. So he got to see a bunch of Stanley Cups and. You know, to this day, you know, he talks about Bob Gainey and Guy Lafleur and Jacques Lemaire and Larry Robinson like it was yesterday. So he tried to, uh, growing up, uh, you know, those were sort of his heroes. So they were my heroes because, you know, we'd watch Hockey Night Canada and he'd show me all the highlights and, you know, throwbacks to how they used to play. And uh, so, you know, we uh, we didn't grow up with a silver spoon in our mouth and it was really, really tough to, to make ends meet. And, you know, I go back to my first time on the ice you know, my dad's used to seeing, you know, the Montreal Canadiens where, you know, they let some of them didn't wear helmets, let alone cages. So I get on the ice mm -hmm. the first time for my first twirl around and uh, I got kicked off the ice because I was not wearing a cage on my helmet. My dad didn't know to put a cage on my helmet because he was just going what he saw on TV. So it took us a couple uh, weeks to be able to afford the $30 to, to get the cage to get me back in the house league. But uh, despite our financial, uh, you know, downfalls, uh, once he found out that it was something that my brother and I loved and wanted to do every day, single day, and it was our passion, and it kept us out of the rough and tumble neighborhoods, it kept us out of the street, they found a way to, to make ends meet, to make sure that we were getting to the rink, uh, getting on the ice, and finding a way to play the game of hockey. So I think the key to that was you know, surrounding us with the right people in the community that wanted the best for us. They didn't want anything returned, and uh, that's sort of why I try to mimic uh, what was given to me. People gave without expecting anything in return, and you know, that's why I started my charity, Hockey Equality, who's since partnered with the NHL and many minor ho hockey uh, organizations. So, uh, yes, there were some rough nights where, you know, we didn't have dinner or, you know, we, we had, uh, you know, liver for dinner or toast and ketchup and for dinner or toast and syrup for, for dessert. But uh, those days helped mold me, uh, gave me the appreciation for any single opportunity or thing you get uh, some of those hungry nights. But I wouldn't change it for the world because – I have an appreciation for every single opportunity that I was giving. Uh, so I'm very, very uh, grateful for that upgrading because now it's, it's helping me now mold the next generation of young athletes. And that's amazing. Like just hearing you talk about your struggles and how it's, you know, like shaped and molded your character in terms of appreciating every single opportunity that, uh, that came your way. And like, what message would you like? I mean, I'm sure that you already do it already, but what message would you impart to those that are going to be watching this um, or the or the be later on or whenever in terms of the importance of embracing the, that difficult period that you may be going through because it's going to help shape your character for for, for tomorrow and for you know, anything or uh, any uh, opportunity that may come um, later down the line. Well, it, it's simple as you know the saying you know tough times don't last, tough people do, and that's sort of something that I sort of put into to my daily life, right? And and, and I go back to my upbringing and yes, I had it hard and. You know, when it comes to hockey, like it, it was tough to have brand new equipment or brand new sticks or, you know, rise to the rank. But I, I think of, you know, some of the people before me that really had to go through certain things like, you know, Mike Marson or, or Val, Val James. You know, these guys were going through what I had to go through, you know, 40, 50 years before me. So that sort of gave me that opportunity where I look at it was the glass half full, not half empty. Yes, there's going to be trials and tribulations. But, you know, I look back on my on my childhood, like um, <laughs> like you said, when you're used to eating toast and ketchup, you know, you're not, <laughs> you have a grateful, a different perspective on, on life, right? Oh, so, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's funny. I talked to my, my oldest son's uh, turning 12 years old and, you know, I used to tell him that, 
you know, my family of nine lived in our whole, a whole, our whole entire living space was smaller than our living room. And he could not process that. He's like, there's no way nine people can live in a 300 square foot space. And I'm like, well, that's what we did. So, uh, you know, I'm almost proud of myself because I could have easily, you know, tapped out and then chose a different path, you know, a negative or, or saying, Hey, you know what? Hockey's too hard. Let me just fall into this trap of the community that I'm raised in. But again, it motivated me to, to now say, Hey, you know what? I have an opportunity and use this gift of hockey now to take my family and uh, my brothers and my sisters out of this situation and give them a better life on and off the ice. And, and I think that's, that's powerful. Like when, when I hear you, like your story about, and I remember uh, reading about your story, like, like about a couple of years ago. And I was just like, just blown away. Like, wow. Like you, you grew up in in one of the tougher areas in Toronto. Like, I don't know much about Toronto except from, from a hockey perspective, but in terms of like the areas, like, you know, like areas you, you visit and, and so forth. Like I'm from New York. Like yeah. I can sit here and tell you like, Oh, I know New York's like the back of my hand. Like, I don't know much about Toronto with the exception, like I know where it is geographically, yeah. not the ins and outs, but just, just reading about your story, like it, it made me even more, more of a fan. Cause it was like, okay, this is someone that I listen to on an everyday basis. But now that I know like, okay, this is something that you, that you had to go through you that, and that you went, that you overcame. It's like, wow. Okay. Now I, I see that in order to get to the highest level of your profession with something that you did not just once, twice, I'm talking yeah. about making it to the NHL, but then also being able to make that transition from playing in the NHL to now us being a successful analyst for um, for, for the NHL on Sportsnet. And I think that is that's something that I, I personally I admire a, a great deal. You know? Yeah, and and it's funny. I was, I was talking to my agent, and uh, you know, he always brings up you know the, the fact that my dad immigrated from Jamaica and had not one but two sons make the NHL. Right? And there's yeah. there's only. 7,000 people to do that. And he had two sons do that. So he's talking about like a medical or mathematical improbability <laughs> to the max. Right. So yeah. uh, for me, it's, 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 it's difficult, but you know, because you, you have the tough upbringing, but I knew from the age of 11 years old, right. You talk about manifesting. I knew from 11 years old that I was going to play in the national hockey league. And, you know, there was a lot of pressure on me at that, uh, at that age to have, um, you know, my family saying, well, this is why you're getting the biggest piece of chicken or your own pizza or the better clothes than my six other siblings, because you're going to get rich and buy the family a house. So that was sort of put upon me or thrust upon me at a young, young age. And it's really frustrating because that's tough now to teach kids like that and put that situation on them. But uh, for me, it, it was something that I embraced and, and helping my family get out of that situation was something that uh, I think is probably my greatest accomplishment. Uh, you know, you see the gold medals and the jerseys and NHL pucks, but uh, creating a better life for my family and my siblings. That was my, my number one, uh, you know, prospect for sure. You can go talk about taking life lessons that, that you learned to what you do now. And I, and I I'm going to talk about like hockey uh, a, l- a little later on, but, but the lessons that you've learned growing up playing in the NHL and as well as now, the foundation, which I want to learn more about, like I want to learn more about, like the foundation that you do and the great foundation work that you do for for youth hockey, and and how and and how it has helped impact not not only not only just the community but as well as like the 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 the, the young the young hockey players that are getting the opportunity to play the sport, um because of because of the work of what you do in which that I learned. From afar, even though I never played a single day of, of hockey in my life, 
it's the most expensive sport probably there is. Um, like, but like, but tell me more about the foundation work that on that you do. Well, I we uh, it's called Hockey Equality, and you can get some more information at hockeyequality.org. And we just had a Black Hockey Summit where we had mm -hmm. 220 kids uh, from all across North America come to the summit, where it was a week camp on ice and off ice. Uh, and just seeing the young kids, you know, the first time you get there, you have all the balloons and the grandstanding, and yeah. and just coming in and having breakfast, you know, something as having breakfast because we know it, it, it's tough. There's a certain demographic of kids yeah. that have you know, uh, that are malnourished and stuff. So having kids come in and have breakfast and just the excitement on their face and then now getting to get brand new jerseys and T-shirts and socks and Gatorade and Biosteel, then they get to go on the ice and then now they get to go play basketball. Then they get to go do rock climbing. So I'm thinking like, you know, for me, I'm thinking what would make me a better hockey player if I had access to something else? What would make myself and Wayne Simmons and Devontae smith Pelly and my younger brother better? And that atmosphere that we created over one week was definitely amazing. So that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to now say, hey, yes, the game of hockey has a lot of changing to do, but we're here obviously to change the way things are, but prepare you for the way that the game is now too. And there's going to be a lot of politics and yes, you may be judged by the way you look, but you have people now at the top uh, at the NHL that are sponsoring a lot of these programs and they've done a, a big financial commitment to us. And, you know, that's the good thing about us. Like, again, we, we, we just quietly go about the work. Yes, we have our social media, but, you know, we're, we have a thousand kids onboarded in our hockey quality network. And now kids have access to on ice, off ice training, scholarships, uh, equipment. You know, you can look us up if you need equipment, you can call us up. Tell us what you need and we'll get it to you within a week. And that's throughout North America as, as well, too. And we're now creating pathways to the next level, right? We're talking about we're growing the game. We're putting all these new equity-deserving kids into the game. There's yeah. still that bottleneck, you know, from minor hockey to junior to the pro ranks. So we're now creating opportunities now for you, uh, you know, whether it's at the junior level or saying, you know what? You might not make the NHL. Let's now transition you into media. So now, you know, someone from sports that may teach you how to do an interview, how to breathe, how to sit, how to have proper posture. Yeah. Maybe you want to be a referee. Uh, Toronto Maple Leafs donated uh, two skate sharpeners. We're teaching kids how to sharpen skates. Wow. So we're doing all these things, creating our own ecosystem now because uh, I think a lot of the excuses could be, well, we, we don't know where to find these candidates, but we're training and developing not just on ice, but off ice people as well, too. So it's amazing to see because, again, there's a lot of work to do. But uh, in the next five, 10 years, you know, you're going to see a lot of kids on TV, a lot of kids at the draft, a lot of kids refing, a lot of kids in hockey ops in the next five, 10 years. And they're going to be saying, thank you, NHL. Thank you, NHLPA. And thank you, Hockey Quality. So to have a, a hand, small, big or something in between and that that's definitely the legacy that I want to create. And, and when we're talking about the change and it sometimes it turns into a noun. we're now the application of that change and we're changing it into a verb. So we're really excited about that, the work that we've done. Uh, and in the next couple of years, you're going to be hearing a lot of kids, you know, you know, potentially wearing a, a hockey quality Jersey under their NHL Jersey at the draft. So yeah. I'm definitely excited for that. Uh, that, that really that is incredible because I've never, felt like more strongly about the importance of diversity and equality in hockey than I do now. And especially, especially like in, in the, in a season that has been so historic in more ways than one, the Vegas Golden Knights, you know, winning the Stanley cup on um, like, I'm not sure if they hold a record of like the fastest expansion team in NHL history to yeah. win a cup, but I'm pretty sure it's up there. And, 
the Bruins having the like historic regular season that they had. But I go back to the Mitchell Miller situation that happened in early November. And that in that situation, you know, like even more lit a fire as someone who is a, a Caribbean man at that, who happens to love hockey and creates content on hockey in terms of showing that, hey, like diversity and inclusion is so important. And, and, and your charity work re- reflects that. And I, and I want to get your thoughts on not only just in terms of the what your thoughts are on that situation that transpired, but also the importance of you know di- diversity and, and inclusion, and you know seeing someone that may that, that looks like you and I, you know, playing hockey and knowing that it is possible to to um, to play out play in the NHL and so forth. Yeah, and it, there's definitely going to be a lot of road ba- roadblocks and setbacks for young kids, right? And I, I think what the, all these situations could really teach us there that there are people that cares, right? And sometimes when you're you hear a word or you hear people treating you differently, you feel alone, and that's the one thing that we're trying to change, regardless of the situation. That there is people out there that if they have to hop on a plane or hop on the phone or hop on the Zoom, you know they're they're there to help. And, you know, you're looking at players throughout the National Hockey League that are going above and beyond when they hear situations like that. But for us, you know, we, we, we want to ask these kids. And, you know, we've dealt with a lot of situations of maltreatment. And we're on the ground. And we're the ones that are the first point of contact. And we ask them, well, what do you want out of this? Right? And a lot of it is, you know, they want to change policy. And I think that's sort of the one thing that I think can really be changed. And we're talking about the leaders in the game, the leaders of these minor hockey organizations. if someone is uttering a slur, the kid and they hear it, the kids aren't lying. Probably a hundred percent, right? No one will never make that up. And you can tell just by the kid's reaction on the ice. And I've heard it and I know that feeling. And I know when I see a kid come to us or they say it, they're 100% uh, in, in the right. So when now as a leadership group or as an organization, you have to start taking the sides of sort of the victims now and finding ways now to make them feel like they're part of the process. So what we're noticing from a policy standpoint, yes, regardless of the name calling all that from the policy, I think that can be changed at the minor hockey organization. That's Canada and U.S. And, you know, the one thing that we can learn from the situation in Boston is like that's that's precedent now where, yes, whatever you do at 12, 13, 14 years old, that can follow you for the rest of your career and the rest of your life. And that's sort of the precedent that's been set. So when we go and we talk to these kids, uh, hey, you have to be a good ally. It's not good enough just to be non-racist. You have to be anti-racist. And I talk about the story of a kid that I went to that uh, used to carry a lunchbox uh, around his neck and everyone would make fun of him. And I tell these kids, what's a good uh, solution to the situation? What would you do as a leader? And a lot of them say, well, I wouldn't make fun of them or I'd tell somebody to stop. And I said, well, you know what I did? Me as a popular kid, I took a lunchbox, I wrote my name about it on it, and I wrote and I wore that around my neck. I made it popular. And all the other kids now were doing that. So that's what we talk about. And I think the one thing now that people need to understand is there's no blueprint, right? If we were to go start a media company in the corner of the earth tomorrow, you and I, we would know exactly yeah. what we have to do. We have to do this, 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 and this. There's there's a blueprint, right? But yes, there is. you and I, this is new. And the fact that we have a, an opportunity to speak about it and talk about it and have some power, we weren't here five years ago. So it's going to take time. So, uh, yes, there's lots of things we can learn. Uh, but the one thing is now, like, again, 
the, the precedence has been set and these young kids, they need to understand like it's not good enough to be non-racist or a non-ally. You have to be anti. And that's what uh, we're trying to teach with hockey equality. And I mean, you couldn't have put it like any better in terms of like the lessons that, that are being, that are being like um, imparted into, into the youth. And, and you mentioned the lesson that, that came about from the, from the Mitchell Miller, a situation that you know what you do at, especially when you're 12 13 and 14 will follow you you know for the rest of the rest of your life and i think one of the big lessons that i learned was was that you just never know who who's watching or who's listening in terms of your message and and what you do um long story short um the the mother of the victim I don't want to um, like name name dropper for just out of respect for her. She reached out to me uh-huh. literally the morning after I I posted that video on Twitter. Like like going like I I'm not proud of the fact I use vulgar uh, vulgarity and whatnot, but but where I really went off and I really showed like how passionate how angry I was at the Boston Bruins organization. She reached out to me the next morning and just expressing just how appreciative that that she was for me like you know like standing up for her son and, and it blew me away and i and i say that sincerely because even to this day i, I still I, i'm like it, it was for me it was just genuinely how i feel but you just never know like how like what you do how it can impact someone else like you you, you talked about it you talk about it at great length in terms of you know what you do or, or what or what the charity and and as well as like i'm talking about it now in terms of like you know, like trying to uh, create, uh, be a, an impactful voice, like not just only in Boston, but hopefully like with, within the sport in which that, you know, I'm able to talk about these things where that um, like the, like this matters. And and I, I'm glad that um, that we're able to talk about it in, in such a way where um, in, in which like, you're able to share your story about, you know, turning a negative into a positive. And I think that's something that um, that we all can certainly learn from. Yeah, and absolutely. And, and we talk about it. If, if a lot of the parties can go back, I'm sure things would be di- done differently, right? But the thing is, like, yeah. that feels like it was you know, almost two years ago now. We haven't heard from it since, right? So that's yeah. why for us, we want to be changing on the policy, right? So, uh, but that that is the one message now where that should be a rude awakening now, because again, we're in the time of social media and there's eyes on you, right? You're When you're driving and you're cutting people off or you're at the grocery store or you're you know, at the nightclub, you now are being followed. But I think it's a lot easier just to now change your way of life than trying to put on a facade and saying, well, you know what, I'm going to pretend. It's a lot easier just to do things the right way and be a good yeah. person. So, again, and, and remember, the NHL, there, there's people now that are from overseas and there's a different way of life. So I think there needs to be almost like a a, a code of conduct and policy in place now and, and training and developing, right? Let's talk to the prospects coming in. And, and, and really doing a, a really good job and, and saying this is there's no more gray era. This is black or white. This is the way we have to be. And, and again, that's the one thing I've learned over this past year. And, and it, it's tough. Uh, but for me, it's, you know, what we're, we're talking about. Let's change. But how do we now affect the kids that are in the game? Right. What about those kids now, 16, 17, 18, that are still trying to make it or they're still trying to find their way? We're talking about changing things down 20 years down the line. But there's these kids now, generation that are trying to make it through and 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 have an opportunity like my brother and I did that I think we're sort of lost in the shuffle of what, uh, you know, the big picture is that we're talking about with this change. 
Yeah, like and most certainly. And I think that like just the I wouldn't say granular, but like but but more like the finer detail matters in, in terms of the grander scheme of um of the big picture. Like, you know, like we just talk about we talk about change in the hockey's for everyone, but how do we go about like really like reinforcing that notion that hey, it truly is and can be um for, for, for everyone? And we saw like not long ago. In which that the NHL said that we know we're we're going to do away with you know with specialty jerseys and so forth, and and I and I thought that was it. I, not that it struck a core, but it was like it, I thought it was really like alarming to say the least because one, you know there there are different you know causes that hockey has been a part of, have been doing especially uh, within the last decade and, and and obviously much longer specifically and most notably hockey fights cancer that they've been doing that since 1998. Um, but I thought I was just really shocked and disappointed in, in, in listening to the response in which that Gary Bettman responded to um, Elliot Freeman, your colleague at a sports night when he interviewed him and asked him about it. Um, and I just want to get your thoughts on like, what, like, like why, why, why is this damaging for, uh, in terms of like the, on the NHL, in terms of the way that they, you know, like we went about like, you know, addressing this and wish that we saw during the season, you know, players that didn't want to wear the LGBTQ um, plus uh, pride jerseys and, 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 uh, and other uh, causes as well. Like, why do you think the NHL decided to go this course route um, was or is uh, particularly damaging? Well, I, I don't know the answer, but uh, let's let's try to get a couple examples here. You know, we sure. both had spicy takes on Twitter and you know, when you do your spicy takes takes on Twitter, what's one of the first things you want to do when you see hateful comments? What do you do? What do you want to do? Ooh, I don't want to turn off your replies, right? Yep. yep. Right? And, I, and I've fallen into that trap a couple times. I'm like, I'm, what I'm doing, I feel is right. I'm saying it's the right thing to say, but there's people out there now that are going to go above and beyond to whatever you tell them. They're going to go the exact opposite now. And you have to now understand now, Yes, the NHL is a, is a corporation. It's a billion-dollar corporation, right? But there's bigger corporations, and there's governments, and there's law and legislation, right? You know, we talked about, you know, the NHL trying to do a diversity workshop in Florida, and it got canceled, right? The government and legislation of Florida saying, we're not going to do that. So if you're the NHL now and you're running a business and you're trying to do things and you're getting shut down left and right, so, again, I'm not carrying the water for the NHL, but – Again, from a business standpoint, I can see it being difficult where you're saying, you know what, I'm just going to turn off the comments, regroup, and re-strategize and come back with something different, right? And and for me, uh, and, I'll, and I'll tell you, I, I love seeing the different pride jerseys. I love seeing the Indigenous uh, jerseys. The Leafs did one this year, and I literally yeah. tried to leverage my relationship with um, Mark Fraser. I'm like, I need a jersey, buddy. I need a hat. I need I, this. This artist is dope. It's crazy. I need this. And I love it. But I understand from that point now where there's po there's powers, good, evil, or indifferent above the NHL that they don't want to see this. They don't want to see the progressiveness of what we're trying to do. So, I, again, I'm not uh, condoning it, but I understand it, right? Because for me, I look and I feel sometimes when I tweet or I say something and I have an opinion and I just look, how does somebody oppose what we're trying to do? So, again, I'm sure they're going to regroup. I'm sure there's going to be a little bit of a, a re-strategization and – but in the meantime, I think, hey, you know what? Let's turn off the comments while we while we figure out what we're going to do next. Like, absolutely. And it's going to be interesting to see how, um, how, like, how things will look for the upcoming season that officially gets underway on October 10th. Now, 
we're in the offseason and we just had the, the first of July NHL free agency that just came and went. And, and it was certainly a freeze frenzy. Thanks to Elon Musk, we didn't really enjoy it the way that we typically would because Twitter decided to say, hey, you know what? I don't want to work today. Go on a vacation. And it's like, you've got to be freaking kidding me. Like, like, re- like, really, you want to do this now? But <laughs> despite all of that, um, we, we've seen some we, we've seen some in- interesting moves take place across the league and as well as um, as, as well as like signings that um, that that caught like people's attention. Like, oh, I didn't see this coming. Were there any moves and transactions that, you know, may have caught you caught you by surprise like that you didn't see coming? Like for me. I I would say that I did not expect the um that that Ryan O'Reilly would go to Nashville and sign there as a free agent. And to hear his comments recently definitely opened my eyes a bit as to why he decided to leave um Toronto after all. Well, with Toronto, the the media definitely has a, a factor, and I got to watch my words because I'm part of that media now too. But there's mm-hmm. there. the yeah. anonymity that don't. You know, they want to be able to go to a restaurant or walk through the mall. And I, and I use my example. I played in the Southeast Division pretty much my whole entire career. And I loved walking through Atlanta Mall. And, you know, even the celebrities uh, in Atlanta, you'd see Usher at the mall, the fans leave them alone. You see Young Jeezy, they leave them alone, right? So mm-hmm. I understand that now where if you're in a market where you can't go to the grocery store, you know, we have Connor McDavid walking through the arena through our camp. He couldn't even make it to the parking lot. It took him 20 minutes wow. to get from the Imagine that being your daily life. So yes, hmm. you're an athlete, you're paid millions of dollars, but you're you're human as well too. So I understand saying, hey, you know what? I just want to go play hockey and then when I'm done, be able to live my life. And that's a big, big part. We talk about mental health hmm. and then being yeah. able to uh, deal with the stresses of the NHL. It's very, very stressful. So I understand hmm. Ryan O'Reilly, but I'm thinking from a hockey perspective and I'm wishing I'm playing because if I was still playing right now, I think I can see Chicago maybe trading for me and giving me $4 million like they did Corey Perry. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, who else? I think they signed uh, one more uh, Nick Felino as well. Yeah. Like there was one year for yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. Where's my $4 million? So I wish I was that. <laughs> I paid a extra to protect Bedard. So, you know, that, that was definitely a choice too. But, again, I like the fact that teams are being bold and saying we're identifying players. And, yes, we're going to play a commodity for some of these guys. And, uh, we're going to make a decision to, to, to change the, the course of direction for our organization too. So, yeah, I, I don't mind that. Uh, the Maple Leafs, you know, they made some decisions as well too. You saw the Flyers clean house a little bit too. And I'm still waiting on Boston. Is, is Bergeron officially retired or is unofficial retirement? What's what's going on uh, there too? I really liked what New Jersey did. Uh, so for me, I'm, I'm a man of action. And, and I like seeing the chaos when someone signs a big contract or giving oh, more money they were expected to get and i'm pro player so i, I like it when the players get the money, and <laughs> all the money yeah you know that that's the big story right now in boston for the bruins like what is bergeron and Krejci gonna do are they gonna resign or they're gonna are they going to like retire and in Krejci's case though there were rumblings about you know interest about maybe potentially going back to play in the czech league but we we don't know and i think that that aspect is a, is a little bit of a frustrating aspect in terms of the fans, because I know that the fans are wondering, you know, what's what's going on? Like, what, what what's the next what's the next update? Like, I and and someone asked asked me like, "Yo, shoot, have you heard it?" I'm like, "No, I haven't heard anything." Like, yeah, I'm not, and I'm not gonna go right. So maybe they're waiting. <laughs> season tickets uh, go up to a certain amount before they announce retirement. I don't know, but 
The one thing about Bergeron, I don't think he has nothing left to to, to prove. And I, I think for him, it's yeah. more so quality of life. Does he want to play another year? Is he going to stay healthy? Uh, and again, it takes time over the the off season for guys just to rest. Right? You feel a lot different uh, in July than you do at the end of the season in May or June. Mm. Guys, the older guys. You know, they might not feel right or ready to make a decision until September, right before camp, right? You get the excitement. And, and I use the analogy for me with soccer. I was a pro soccer player. Uh, I was one of the best. I was a better soccer player than hockey player. But I just – something was within me, and I knew it was time. Like, this is not for me anymore. I didn't like the practices, and I just hung that up. And I was very, very good. So I think for them it's yeah. more of an internal thing. Are they ready to – are they re- are they ready to make a decision? But what do they really want to do internally? And sometimes the excitement of camp – uh, coming up in September or the dread of camp makes uh, that's why guys make decision at that time. So, uh, man, uh, you took some of the juice away from the, from the million dollar stake. I want to ask, I'm going to still ask anyway, because yeah. I want to pick your, I want to pick your mind here. You played in the NHL and you can relate to a lot of things that, that I in the common man in the media may not, may never be able to fully understand. You just played 80, let's say 77 to 82 regular season games. And if you're lucky, you 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 play maybe 7 to 12 games in the playoffs. If your team goes on a long run in the Seneca playoffs, you're playing upwards to close to maybe 90 to 100, 100 uh, games um, in a given season. When the, When that season comes to an end, there's a two-part question. The first part is, how are you feeling physically? And then number two, like how, how does a player make the determination and decision knowing, hey, it's time to like hang up the skates. It's been, it's been a good ride. And, and you know, go off into the sunset. Like, like, like take us into the mind of an NHL player when they're going through that, the offseason making that kind of assessment. Well, there's, you know, there's one day of the year where you're healthy – as an NHL hockey player, and that's the first day of training camp, and that's it, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I tell everybody, take all I've never been diagnosed with a broken finger, but I got wow. finger, I got summer fingers, summer there, summer there. So, <laughs> with broken wow. fingers, with hairline fractures in your foot, so just getting over that every single day of the season, you're pretty much not 100. percent And then now, you know, I always talk about it on the broadcast. You know, teams that have to come back down three, four goals and just the mental stress of that being down or having a lead and losing lead, the ups and downs of the season, emotionally, that takes time, uh, you know, to, to, to recover from too. And then now you have the travel, right? Yeah, we're traveling mm-hmm. first class and that's great. But, you know, you're going from Boston to Vancouver. That's a tough, tough, tough right? Wow. You know, I played with some guys that could not even sit in their seat that long because they're back. They'd have to be lying in the aisle, and you see the flight attendants walking over them because, again, it, it's just a, a daily stress uh, physically and emotionally. Mm. So when you're now playing, you know, you're 35 years old, and I used to do this. Uh, you know, My first couple of years, I had the big signing bonus. I had to park my car right next to the track to motivate me to run around at full speed saying, I got to be able to pay for this thing. <laughs> because when you get the big signing bonus, you can sort of get a little bit lazy or complacent and all that. They, mm. you know, it's uh, Jeff Merrick always uses the line: "It's tough to go as a boxer. It's tough to go for a three-mile run in silk pajamas." So when you have that, <laughs> factors and family factors, right? You have young kids. Yeah. 
I understand why some guys say, hey, you know what, enough is enough. And you look at a guy like Bergeron, you're like, this guy could play for another four years, five years. He's that good. Uh, but all those other factors, the, the life factor and quality of life before and after, it, it definitely, I see why guys, you know, walk away a, a little bit earlier. For me, I think I retired at 31, 32 because yeah. I knew I was going to be doing this, whether I played to 40, whether I had $50 million in the bank or, or 50,000, I knew this was my calling. It was the right time because I didn't want to have to deal with that daily stress. It was, it was really, really yeah. uh, uh, to took its toll on me. And I decided, hey, you know what, I'm going to step away from the game. And who knows, this could be my next calling for all we know, you know, doing the media, doing the philanthropy, being us, uh, you know, doing the sports group, all this other stuff. That's that's why yeah. I'm excited. And that's my new passion. Like what? Tell me about when you, after you retired and you went into the world of sports media, because I've always have had a, a curiosity as to when an athlete, a former pro athlete retires and he and they're fortunate to make the leap into media successfully. What goes into that? Like, how, like, how do you go about uh, make making that transition, transaction, or transition rather? Excuse me. And as well as the work that goes into you know preparing for a broadcast, like whether it be the pregame show, obviously, and a postgame and the production meetings and, and and so forth. Like, what goes all? What goes all into it? Well, the one thing for media, it's it's work, right? I, I run a hockey school as well, and I can go run a week worse of hockey school off the top of my head. But for for doing a broadcast in sports media, it's it's work. You have to watch games, you have to take notes. And, and for me, I think I got a little bit lazy as a player towards the end of my career, where I didn't really focus on the details. I wish I knew now as a broadcaster, uh, as a player, I'd be a lot better. I'd look at things from a different perspective. And you know, I used to have coaches say, "You need to play a little ur a little bit more urgency." And I never knew what it what that meant until now I'm on the broadcast saying these guys need to play with a little bit more urgency. So it, it's it's a different perspective. Uh, and what's great about it is it's not like TV business. Everybody there is helpful. It's a team. It's a family atmosphere. Uh, you have to do prep. Uh, you have phone calls. And you get excited being in there. You get to watch hockey for a living. And getting to learn from people like Ron McLean and Elliot Freeman and David Amber, who's taken me you know, by his side, it's definitely been, uh, you know, they didn't have to do that. They can be like, well, who's this dumb hockey player? I think he's going to try to be a media. But, again, they've really embraced me as, as a colleague and as a friend. And what's great about that is, you know, everyone has their little barbs and chirps on air. You know, pretty much, you know, everyone hangs out away from the rink. You know, we go to cottages. We go to dinners. We have drinks together. So it's that family atmosphere. So, you know, I urge players. I know it's tough to really get into it, but. Uh, for me, it renewed my passion and getting to watch the game from a different angle, but just learning from the best in the business. And it's 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 difficult. It's 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 real work. And as a hockey player, it you, you get an appreciation from that because you played a sport for a living and you had fun. This is actual work. But uh, you know, just being among some legends like Ron McLean and Elliot and Jeff Merrick, who you know, we started off uh, on a radio program. I knew nothing about radio. I didn't even, I wasn't even, I wasn't even able to, able to wear headphones because I couldn't hear myself. Wow. Up. And so just having them go through those growing pains with me and, and really go above and beyond to, to help me not just survive, but thrive. It's def definitely great. And, you know, the lessons I learned from hockey, again, I'm putting that into to media, you know, being friendly with the cameramen, being friendly with the producers, being early, being punctual, coming on time, uh, you know, paying attention to those details, um, staying late, asking questions, 
uh, and being passionate about it, I think that's what's helped me uh, rise to the ranks fairly quickly. Wow. So, like, I I grew up watching, like, Ron McClain, specifically starting during my college years. Because like, I remember when CBC had the rights to Hockey Night in Canada, and I would watch him. You know, he would host, um, obviously, the show, and as well as, like, Coach's Corner with um, – with, with, with Don Cherry and, you know, I would watch like some of the late night um, games as well. Like, you know, Dave Amber as well as when he, when he would work ringside as well. And then when Sportsnet got the TV rights, um, I got continue to watch the guys. And I've always been fascinated as someone who has been in radio now for, uh, for the last four years. Like, and I don't know much about like TV, but I see, like what makes those those guys so good? I'm talking about Ron McLean as well as like um David Amber, and obviously I'm not taking anything away from Jeff Merrick, who is a pro's pro in my opinion, with both radio and TV, um as well as Elliot Friedman, who I listen to the Thirty Two Thoughts podcast like 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 it's the Bible for, for yeah. crying out loud. Um, what were some of the early lessons that you've learned like early in your in your media career for, from working with pros that? Has helped you grow as a broadcaster, and as well as as becoming one of the most respected voices um, in hockey as well. Well, I think for them, it's just you know being prepared, right? And you know, Ron McLean is he's he's a hockey encyclopedia, but he has a photographic memory where we'll be watching a game, and someone will random person will get tripped, and in his mind, he'll he'll tell. Them, this reminds me of the conference final in 1991 when so-and-so tripped, tripped this person. Can you pull that up? So he oh, is, wow. him and David Amber, they're, they're hockey fans first, right? Mm. And I'll ask them a question. And sometimes I'll try to have, you know, ask him a, a sideways question thinking that he won't know about the current NHL. And if he doesn't know it, he'll pick up his binder. He has his binder. He'll go flip to the team and he'll look at it and he'll have the answer for you. So he has – notes on every single team on their daily what is going on transactions who's up who's down uh, who's hurt uh what their cap hit is so they're hockey fans and as a player you're like you know this is you know impertinent information you have to know it right and, and for me i'm the king of the notes so i write everything down i go through my script i have probably about 12 paragraphs and i look over at ron mclean and we're doing a 30 minute show and he's got three words on the piece of paper. <laughs> That's it. Wow. He's already rehearsed the whole show. He knows exactly what he's going to say. He probably says it in his mind once and knows exactly what he's going to say for a full 30-minute show. So just seeing that, I'm like, these guys are pros, pros. And, you know, I, I write down my 12 paragraphs. I forget about three quarters of it, right? And I'm looking down at my notes on air. And so these guys are pros. And then the thing is with David and, you know, sometimes you mess up and there's going to be growing pains. He looks over and gives you a little wink and, hey, don't worry, you're good, you're good. But uh, they've been great. And what's amazing about that, they've been, you know, great friends of me away from the rink and they've been huge supporters of the charity. Um, usually to book them for an appearance, four months, five months. You know, I gave Ron McLean, I think, a week's notice and David, three days, they showed up. They showed up. They were early on time prepared and they were passionate. So I think for them, it's just that passionate. But if I had to say – one thing that sums the two of them up, they're both extreme, extreme hockey fans. They love the game of hockey. They love the NHL. It's it's not a job for them. It's a passion for them. And I think it's it's great. And that's sort of rubbed off as me on me as a former player. Wow. That's 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 really that's absolutely incredible. Um and as I'm as I feel, I feel like I was living vicariously through 
through you as you're as as you're telling me about like you know like them as people, but as well as like getting to have a better understanding of your personality and as well as how like, how how it's helped impact you. And I think that the thing that I've enjoyed most, especially this is my first opportunity, you know, I, I was talking with you and someone who I personally have I've listened to and I've watched and admired from afar is getting a better understanding of like the ins and outs of of like the of like sports media in terms of the television side and some of the best pros in the in the business and and understanding the importance of just of preparing and being prepared and you know being a fan and like having a passion for it and if there's one piece of advice that you would give to someone who 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 is young and they want to they want to increase their knowledge on the sport how do they best go about attaining that knowledge and as well as being able to become better in their craft in terms of their pursuit in in in, in getting into sports media whether it's radio or tv or podcasting and so forth well, I think it's the lesson that I try to tell some of these young players that want to be at the next level, right? So if you want to know about the NHL and know about hockey, you got to watch, right? And when you're listening to the broadcast and you're listening to different perspectives, right, that's knowledge that you're gathering that you might not even get it consciously, but subconsciously, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, you mentioned the podcast, right? And, you know, it's it's really tough for me to, to stay up and watch an Anaheim game randomly, not not hating on Anaheim by any ducks, but you try that <laughs> And you listen to Elliot and, and and Jeff. Anything that's pertinent, they'll they'll they they have it right because they're that hockey fan. So read, right? We're in a day and age. If you want to know anything in the history of the world, it's on your phone, right? Yes. So it is. Mm-hmm. I would start with your history and learning about Wayne Gretzky and learning about Willie O'Ree and learning. Uh, but if you're looking to get into the business, right? The one thing I think that um, you know people are afraid of. They're afraid of the answer no, and they're afraid mm-hmm. that they're people right and they're afraid to network and a lot of nhl players i think are like that when they're done playing they they're stuck in the routine and they don't want to reach out and ask for help right and you know you reached out to me via dm on on twitter like hey you want to come on my podcast I said, <laughs> I follow you on twitter absolutely 100 i love the stuff that you're doing on there right and i'm sure you're probably thinking should i dm him or should i get his email you just sent yeah. a message didn't know but here i am today and, and i'm passionate and i'm excited to be here right so i think don't be afraid to be vulnerable don't be afraid of the answer no uh but again just put the work in and get the knowledge and, and for me i can say with jeff you know jeff has a lot of people in the radio that are working the daily beat on nhl teams and i hear them on the radio and i'm like these some of them know more about the leafs than i do and it's my job to know about the leafs and their passion they're in so it's just uh a matter of time before they quote unquote break through or achieve whatever goals that they're going to do. So put the work in study, but be a fan. It's really tough to be a fan of the game. And, and that's the one thing I know it's your job, but be a fan of the game of hockey and study it, but just have an excitement because you look at two people at the pinnacle and three people and Jeff and uh, David and, and Ron, they're like when, they, when they're at the studio and it's long days for them, some of them are there until two in the morning they're excited they're excited they're passionate and they don't want the day to end so you can't fake that that's a genuine passion so if you want to get into this you got to have that to to be successful absolutely i just want to ask a couple of questions in terms of the posting that just ended before we wrap up the, the recording first and foremost did you think 
or expect that the Bruins would not get out of the first round when the Stanley Cup playoffs began this past April and how shocking it was for the Bruins in your mind to collapse after leading that best of seven series against the Florida Panthers three games to one. And what went wrong in your mind? Well, I'll, I, I got booed out of the stratosphere for some of my hot takes. And one of them was... <laughs> um, I won't boo you, I promise you, Anthony. And I, and I picked Jack Campbell winning the uh, Vesna Trophy. And again, I'm, I still got get tweets to this day about that too. But um, wow. I predicted Florida was going to beat Boston in the first round. And, and I go back to a few years ago where Tampa Bay lost to the Columbus Blue Jackets. And I said... Yeah you have to go through adversity through a season, right? You got to go on a five-game losing streak. You got to deal with injuries and a star player going out. You have to deal now with a goalie slumping, right? And you look at Boston, every single little thing clicked throughout the year, next to zero adversity, right? I've been waiting for, you know, since 2017 for them to to fall out of the stratosphere and they just keep getting better. better. I think this – them losing is going to be best for them uh, long term because they won't take anything for granted. But if you don't know how it is to come down, you know, back from a three-one deficit or four-one deficit in a game, uh, or you know, the power play stunk the joint up for you know three weeks or four weeks, if you don't go through that adversity of an entire eighty-two game season, it's going to be tough to deal with that in the, in the thing. So I think they had when they're up three-one, open net. Yeah. And I think Marshan missed, or he had a breakaway and he missed. Yeah, Mar- Marshan uh, missed on a breakaway. Yeah, so um, they probably deleted all my hot takes off of uh, the stratosphere. <laughs> Florida coming back. Um, mm. And again, it was just due to that non-adversity factor. So, again, I could have been wrong, but that's what I thought. You have to go through that. Um, yeah. You have to lose. You have to know how to um, deal with a struggling specialty team unit. You have to deal with both goalies, you know, stinking out the joint and – I think too many things clicked, and once they started to not click, I think it was too late. And Florida, mm-hmm. like they had that never say die attitude, right? And mm-hmm. yeah, Bob Brobrovsky, and, and if they went ten games, I think in uh, against uh, Vegas, I think they would have came back. Brobrovsky just went on a insane run, uh, yeah. and if Brobrovsky had played the way he did, I, I think it would have been a different uh, series as well too. And again, he caught wind and caught uh, lightning in a bottle. But uh, I think Boston. Again, I've been waiting for them to fall since pre-pandemic. I think they're going to be better off, and whether or not they win the President's Trophy, I think they're now they'll, they'll go another couple rounds next year. The second and last, and now the last question of of this episode. Um, when I look back on the NHL season um, as a as a whole, I think one of the biggest things that we saw was how much hockey truly matters in non-traditional hockey map, um, markets and whatnot. Because, and I talked about this on the, on the past shoot and score podcast with the flagship um, NHL podcast for a believe network. And I talked about how the conference finals I thought was the most shocking, the most unexpected in terms of geographical locations, Florida versus Carolina, Dallas versus Vegas. All four of these markets are not a quote unquote non-traditional hockey markets. And we all have talked about how growing the game is important. You know, like and, and I said at the time during the conference finals that if there was ever a time 
that hockey fans needed to prove that and show that, hey, like we actually do care and we do love the love the sport. Now is the time to prove it on a national stage where everybody's going to be watching, both in the U.S. and as well as in Canada. What, what were some of your impressions watching both the Eastern Conference and the Western Conference Finals in terms of these traditional, non-traditional hockey markets, you know, like showing showing up in terms of like the views and the, and the ratings and as well as just the, just the genuine interest in the sport during this conference finals? Well, I know the TV business is a lot different than anything else, but I go from the fan perspective and you're just seeing, like I, I played in Carolina and Florida and those fans are passionate. You know, we were going to games in, in December in Carolina and there's fans. We're coming out of the game, uh, out of morning skate around one o'clock and they're already starting to tailgate outside the rink, getting ready for the game, wow. <laughs> right? So that internal fan fandom, which is really, really good. And I think that's going to learn, uh, you know, eventually turn into the views and all that. And I heard all the, you know, the tweets about, oh, it's boring, it's boring, but it was great hockey. And, and what's great about the playoffs is you see uh, stars turn into superstars overnight. And you saw Marsha So, and you saw Kachuk, yeah. the legend of Kachuk, and, you know, Rupe Hints in Dallas. These guys now are turning to household names. So now when you have these non-traditional markets now, but – the league and the fans now are starting to recognize some of these players that you might not be watching. You might not be staying up till 1230 Eastern time to watch Dallas, but a few, that Rupe hints, he's worth the price of admission. Yeah. Pavelski, Wyatt Johnson, some of these younger guys. And yeah. it's great to see the, the playoff really turn guys uh, into stars. Right. And again, you go to Vegas, you're telling me that's not a hockey city. I've been to that rank. I don't think I've heard a louder rank than that. Dallas. Wow. Amazing hockey market as well, too, because just the guys that live there after they're done playing, right? They, they, they love it as well, too. So I think people equate uh, success with not being able to walk down the street, but I think it's the fans, uh, the passion, but the stars that these non-traditional markets are, are making. And and that, I think that's great for the game, and that's how we build the game. Yes, there's the McDavid's and the Matthews and the Crosby's, but you know every year there's three, four players that have their – their coming out party, and that's great for the game too. And I'm excited because there's kids now that are they're in Canada and the U.S. that are BIPOC that are coming, and you're going to see them, and you're going to be like, where do these kids come from, right? Where do these kids come from? And you're talking about kids coming from Texas, and Matthew Nye's coming from Arizona, um, Matthews from Arizona, non-traditional markets. There, there's going to be kids coming from Mexico, and there's going to be kids coming from yeah. – West, you know, territories in the in the, the north, and that's going to be great for the game because you're going to hear the storytelling behind that and from these non-traditional markets and communities, and that's how we're going to grow the game. It's been an absolute blast, um, like Anthony. Seriously, like thank you um, so much for coming on the pod. I want to give you um one last opportunity to drop the info for your um for for, for the foundations and all of the work. Um, that you do and how people um, can get involved if they so choose to. Yeah, we're always looking for volunteers and donations. So please look us up at www.hockeyequality.org. Uh, we're on Twitter at Hockey Equality, Instagram at Hockey Equality uh, as well too. And uh, our number one mission is lowering financial barriers for equity deserving youth. And there's no color to that, right? The game is expensive for whether you're South Asian, Black, uh, Caucasian, no. South Asian, East Asian, uh, we're finding ways to lower the game, but really grow the game. And in 10 years, you know, you're going to hear kids 
you know, wearing the hockey quality banner saying thank you to, you know, the supporters and every dollar counts. And we're very, very grateful for our partnerships with the NHL, NHLPA, uh, and, and lots of other uh, donors as well, too. There's a lot of people that just want to help the game. They do it anonymously. And I'm very, very grateful for them, too. And I uh, really appreciate you letting me come on your podcast and, and talk about the things I'm passionate about, too. And, you know, keep up your great work. I'm reading all your work and, and being in the Boston market as well, too. You're a great Twitter follower. You, you got a lot of courage. You're ready to step on any toes that you need to be stepped on. And that's how we grow the game as well, too. So I'm very, very excited to be on here. And thank you very much for having me on. No, that means a lot to me, Anthony. Thank you uh, greatly so much for, for the kind words and sentiments. And um, and Anthony Stewart of NHL and Sportsnet and amongst other great endeavors that he is a part of, uh, thank you so much for coming on the pod um, today. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.